Welcome to the Just Hands Podcast, where we break down a hand of low stakes, live, no limit hold'em cash each week, or at least we usually do. Uh, this week, however, we have the extraordinary Vanessa Selbstan to discuss some tournament hands and get into some general poker strategy in the process. Uh, before we start, a few quick announcements. Many of you have heard about our event with Thinking Poker this March 25th and 26th. We're less than a month away and have just over a third of our seats remaining. To get more information and reserve your seat, head to justhandspoker.com slash thinkingpokernyc or take the link in the show notes. More exciting news, a few months back we did a similar event with World Series of Poker champion Greg Raymer. We're now releasing two premium podcasts of Zach, Greg, and I going in-depth on a couple of the most interesting hands from that session. These are not to be missed. Greg gave away some awesome advice that has really affected my personal live game. Okay, uh, last week we offered to give away an hour of coaching to one person who submitted a review on iTunes. The winner is Rolexis777. Thank you all so much for your reviews. And Rolexis, please email me at jack at justhandspoker.com to schedule your free lesson. Finally, we want to announce that we are restructuring our membership program. Members will now get exclusive access to an active private forum with the Just Hands team, as well as the other members. In addition to having Zach and I available for all of your hands and strategy questions, you'll have access to our library of premium podcasts, including the new episodes with Greg Raymer. This will all be for $19.99 a month or $15.99 a month when you sign up for a year. But until Friday, March 3rd, you can actually sign up for half price. Okay, I know that was a lot of announcements, and I want to say on behalf of Zach and I, thank you so much for listening. And enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Jack. Hello, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's nice to be uh, exceptionally close to you. Uh, we don't normally get to record the podcast in the same room, uh, but this is one of those times, and we do not have a headphone splitter, so we are standing right next to each other. But if that wasn't good enough, we have one of the premier poker players uh, on today's poker scene on the podcast today. Zach, why don't you give her a proper introduction? Today we have on the podcast Vanessa Selfs, tournament player extraordinaire. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are uh, you doing? I'm I'm doing well too. All uh, right. I heard you have a hand for us. I do. I have. Uh, I do have a hand. Should I just jump right in, or how does it how does it work? Yeah, just jump right in. Okay. Um, some of the people might actually be familiar with the hand uh, that I want to talk about. It comes from the 2013 Super High Roller, um, and I did not cash that event. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but I did come in 11th place, uh, which I've done in a bunch of super. I've actually played a few Super High Rollers, and my record, uh, like if you if there were rankings for like getting in the top two tables, I think I would just be crushing. Um, so this was another one where I got the top two tables and anyway, uh, this was a hand that came up when I was second in chips and Do I was against David Sands, also known as Doc Sands. He was first in chips and we're on the same table. Uh, we're playing two tables, one table six handed, one other table is five handed. I believe we were the six handed table and you know, eight people make the money. Um, so we're kind of near the bubble and when you're playing, you know, the min cash is like 250 grand. So people take the bubble pretty seriously and I think play t tends to tighten up quite a bit. Um, actually, not not related to this hand, but right after this hand, I played another hand where like I bluffed it all off. I'm sure a lot of people saw it, and uh, I ran into the nuts. And that was I was trying to like it was like kind of a weird bluff, but I was basically trying to exploit the fact 
that people play like way too tight in these situations, I think. Uh, unfortunately, I did it against the chip leader and ran into the nut, so I ended up busting. But um, that kind of gives, I think, some perspective as to, you know, it, some insight into this hand in question in particular. So um, anyway, so the hand is um, Doc Sands opens. He's opening quite a bit, um, but not crazy. Like he's, you know, we're, we're six-handed, so people are going to, you know, and everyone's obviously really competent and good. So he's he's opening a, a decent amount, maybe like 40% or something like that. Um, he opens under the gun, and I'm in the cutoff, I believe, with ace-king uh, with the uh, – well, ace-king offsuit, and I just call. Um, I don't remember stack, exact stack sizes. I know that, I, you know, we are both pretty deep stacked, like uh, – 80 blinds or more and the rest of the table had somewhere between 30 and 50 blinds um so just and just stop me whenever you want to yeah. like say something about the hand yeah i, I just kind of had a question more in terms of your read of people playing tight on the bubble sure so obviously you know recreational players in like most tournaments if not all tournaments are going to tighten up way too much before the bubble because they mm -hmm. want to cash but it seems like in this type of super high roller event it's maybe like a different type of recreational player that maybe not all of them are doing so and you know sure. this is also an, an example of like where the money means so much to professionals that they might tighten up too much so maybe you could talk a little bit more in terms of like how doc sand specifically is going to be adjusting like if there's like an opt a relatively optimal amount of hands they should be playing in aggression how much is sure. doc sands deviating from that and how much is like the average player in the field deviating. Sure. That's an interesting question. Um, let me talk specific. Uh, I'm not actually sure about Doc Sands, um, about how much he's deviating. Um, I will say that, and when I don't have a specific read, I just use my general read. And my general read, so I think it's interesting what you point out about, you know, amateurs, um, the, the people playing this tournament are wealthier amateurs, and you're absolutely right. I've hit that on the head. The people that are tightening up aren't really the amateurs. Um, they're mostly the pros. And it's for two reasons. One is just because when you're a smaller stack near the bubble, it's actually mathematically correct to tighten up based on ICM. Um, you know, uh, for people that don't know about ICM, the, the point is that, like, you know, in the extreme example, let's say I have, you know, if we're on the direct bubble and I have 50,000 chips and two people have one chip and there's a pay jump of, you know, the bubble, which is a $250,000 pay jump, and the chip leaders all have, you know, a million chips, even if I double my 50,000, I still only have 100,000. I'm still a severe, severe underdog to win the tournament or to even move up another place. So the value of doubling up is very small, but the value of surviving past the people that have one chip each is obviously uh, a huge amount since they're going to bust very soon. So that's a very obvious example when the distribution is one chip, one chip, 50K, and then a million. But you can see where you can extrapolate. And, um, you know, the smaller your stack is, relative to the bigger stacks at the table and the more you have relative to the stacks that are smaller than you the more correct it is to tighten up so in this situation with one chip one chip fifty thousand and a million i would i would fold aces in that situation um and it just becomes a math question as to how tight you have to be so when you say the term tightening up too much i do think there is a tendency to get a little bit scared of the money um two hundred fifty thousand is a lot of course most people don't have all of their own action but at the same time there's um it's the money partly, but it's also there's a certain amount of prestige about making the final table, especially back then when they were televised and there weren't so many of them. You know, the situation's changed a bit uh, in the poker world. There's a lot more of these high rollers happening, and they're not usually televised. But at the time, it was much more of a uh, kind of a badge of honor, and I think people were trying to make the final table 
Um, so it wasn't necessarily that their strategy would be to tighten up like someone like Doc Sands. What I would assume is, you know, he, especially with, as the chip leader, he's going to be opening a fair bit, but you know, there's still going to be a fair bit of difficulty, I think, in pulling the trigger in difficult situations when it's for a lot of your chips. So even if you may open a lot, if someone's raising you and putting a lot of pressure on you, um, or you just get into a big pot, I think in the marginal decisions, whether it's a, you know, a close decision between a call or a fold or a close decision between a bluff or a not bluff, I think people tend to err on the safer side. And that's kind of how it plays out. Mm -hmm. So to me, ICM plays like a really interesting role in this particular preflop decision of flatting or raising. Mm -hmm. Since we kind of have like our own ICM interest in mind in terms of flatting being a lower variance play, which uh, will increase our likelihood of getting to the money. But also we have Doc Sands, the chip leader, who is potentially opening wider than he should be under the gun because he's, he is the chip leader. He's taking advantage of other people's uh, ICM awareness. And uh, we have his ICM concerns and that, you know, we don't, if we three bet, we're maybe not threatening his stack, but we're significantly. Absolutely. So uh, you're absolutely right. Um, sorry. Continue. Oh, well, I mean, I think you know where I'm going with this. So yes. So should we three bet because we want to put pressure on him because of the bubble. And I think, um, it's a valid question, but my strategy, especially at that time, I think it might change nowadays because poker's changed a bunch. But my strategy was going to be to three bet a lot more polarized. So to three bet with hands that I would be much more comfortable getting all in with. And just given, um, and the reason I say that was because, you know, I'd rather have a really good hand like aces, kings, or queens, um, or a lot of really bad hands. And of course, you know, an obvious. A question to a lot of people might be, well, if you want to re-raise them a lot, you can't just wait for aces, kings, and queens. And and that's a fair point, but I think I would be pretty unbalanced in that situation and be pretty bluff-heavy. Um, you know, I, I frequently think about looking, if you if you see the World Series main event, and this year was an exception, um, the World Series main event final table played out. It was actually really cool because I feel like finally people did their homework, and the very first hand, I think Cliff Josephy got three bet, and then he four bet with trash and then Kui win five bet. And I just loved that hand because I had always said to, to, you know, when I coached for the main event final table and I'm using this example because it's the biggest case of nerves and there's a lot on the line, everything like that. People would just three bet relentlessly with trash and it would always work. Like no one would four bet. No one would like really, really play back in any meaningful way. Like call pre like call pre flop and then check raise with air on the flop or whatever way you think is good to play back. People would never do it, but yet like everybody would be flatting Queens and Kings and stuff just because like they didn't want to get all in pre flop. So it was this insane thing where they were three betting, but it was like 95% bluffs, you know, and it worked because I think people, you know, when you three bet someone that's out of position, uh, it just puts a lot of pressure on them, and it, it's just difficult, once again, to pull the trigger uh, when you don't have the cards in that kind of a situation. It's just easier to wait, just say, I'm going to wait and see how it plays out, especially early on when you don't have a specific read. People are like, I'm going to wait and see how it plays out. So all that being said, with Ace-King, it's a hand where if I get four bet, given the dynamic that I just said, where I think he's going to be playing tighter and waiting for the goods, I'm not actually in a spot that I'm happy about at all. And if that's the case, then I decided that that's going to be one of the hands that I'd rather flat. I think it's really deceptive when you flat it um, and you can get a lot of value, but um, you tend to chase out, you know, dominated hands when you three bet and stuff like that. Okay. And before we move to the, the flop kind of last quick question, do you think in this moment Doc Sands thinks that you're 
uh, going to likely have Ace-King in your flatting range. Uh, because, yeah, be, uh, just how you specifically are perceived by Doc Sands. Sure, yeah. I think that people would be surprised to see me flat Ace-King. That's another reason I want to do it, for sure. Um, because I think it's a very disguised hand. Um, I think people, like, don't realize how much thought I'm, you know, especially at that time, once again, don't realize how much thought I'm giving to my ranges just see me as an aggressive person. And that, you know, the number of times someone said to me, well, you definitely would have three about that hand there in that situation. They're always referring to spots where it's like something with like Queens or Ace King or Kings or something. And they say, because you're an aggressive player. And it's like, yes, I'm an aggressive player, but I'm not just like clicking buttons. I have reasons for doing what I'm doing, but I think people don't really necessarily think about it that deeply. Yeah. So I do think he would have thought that I would have three bet Ace King. Yeah. So we, um, so basically I flat everybody else folds. And we get to the flop, and the flop is really interesting. Um, I have the ace of clubs in my hand, and the flop is king, jack, five, all clubs. So it's a pretty good flop for me. I have top pair, top kicker, and the nut flush draw. Uh, and he continuation bets, but on the larger side. And this is something I think is really important. I think paying attention to sizings uh, is just tremendously important and something people don't do nearly often enough, um, or specifically enough, I should say. Like they kind of note the sizing, but they don't. And even like pros, like really good pros, I have so many conversations where I say, he can't, you know, this guy can't be bluffing in this spot with this sizing. And, and they say, well, you know, I don't trust my sizing read tell enough to, like, I don't trust my logic on the sizing enough to make my decision based on that. And like, okay, but if you learn to do that, then you can make good decisions. But people, for some reason, um, they don't. But I, I, that's my biggest, honestly, you know, whenever I'm coaching anyone, it's like, mid stakes or, or high stakes trying to move higher. Um, not, it's not like a beginner thing, but for anyone that's kind of like mid stakes and trying to break through, like focusing on the sizing is my biggest piece of advice always. But anyway, so in this case, he bets two thirds of the pot or maybe three quarters of the pot. It was pretty big and I call. So I don't know if you want to talk about the flop. I think it's very yeah. standard. I, I mean, I think the flop is very standard. I just want to point out to our listeners. So we, we have a mostly, cash audience although i think probably almost everybody you know understands or actively plays tournaments uh, but i think even though this is a tournament hand a lot of what we're discussing is super super applicable applicable to cash like i think sizing tells is like easily like the most reliable exploit uh <laughs> you know other than sort of basic known strategy flaws more so than, i think than uh, like live physical tells, bet sizing tells are just extremely reliable in a cash setting against uh, particularly amateurs and also some weaker pros. I also, you know, going back to preflop, I think it's interesting what you're talking about uh, a, a preflop strategy where, I mean, the game has evolved, but maybe not so much in low stakes cash where I think since three bets are perceived to be so strong, it just makes a lot more sense to three bet weak hands than it does, uh, you know, to have a, you know, sort of wide range of value three bets. Uh, and I, I think maybe in the higher level of tournament thinking that has evolved, but in cash it hasn't. So I find myself flatting strong hands a lot more often. And in my three bet range is like horribly uh, skewed towards bluffs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I okay. just think this is really interesting for our listeners from a cash perspective. Cool. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think it is very applicable to cash. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of people are really skewed and uh, the, you can exploit them 
by forbetting those people. And you can always, if you take, if you notice when other people are skewed, the easiest way to do that is um, just if you, the minute you see them flat, like show down a hand where they flatted queens or kings or, or even jacks, like if it was, you know, they were in late position or something, you're just like, oh, like the minute I see someone that shows down a hand where they flatted a big hand or an ace king, actually it's even a better example because ace king comes up a lot. And then I see them three bet. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to take a really like um, specific mental, like I'm going to take note of how many times you're three betting because there are the, like those people like to three bet a lot. And it's just, you're absolutely right. It's always, it's almost usually weak. And, and so often, you know, I'll hear someone telling me a hand and like a student or something, and they'll say, well, I had Kings here. So I flatted because I hadn't three bet yet. And I hear that all the time. And I just think it's so funny because a, I'm like, okay, fair enough. That's valid. It's very valid, especially against a really weak player. But two things, one is one takeaway for the student is just like, yes, but he also knows that you're like a poker player and know how to three bet light. So I don't think it's completely valid not to three bet just because you haven't three bet yet. But my bigger takeaway just for like the general poker population is the number of times I hear this is astounding. And I believe that if like regular three bets are like 60% bluff, 40% strong, let's say, I think the first three bet is just like 85% bluff, like from most players. Um, so I just think take note, everyone. <laughs> I think that's so interesting because it's just like, and, and and just watch. You'll see what you'll you'll just like t- hear me out, and then when you play your next cat, few cash sessions, like pay attention to people's first three bet and see how often you see a value hand because it's like almost never. Yeah, and uh, kind of consequently, like when someone three bets within like half an orbit or an orbit of their previous three bet, it's you know, in my experience, primarily value. Primarily what? Value combos. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that too. And just so there's no confusion, she's not talking about the 65-year-old man uh, (laughs) at your table. I'm not not talking about the 65-year-old man. I mean, I'm not, but sometimes Uh, them too. Yeah, I mean, obviously on the location and the stakes really change things. Like for, for the stakes that Jack and I play, which is like a lot of, you know, two, five, no limit, two, two PLO. Got it. Um, you know, this probably holds a little bit less true, but I think the, the general sentiment of how like people's first three bet in like, especially a deeper, like no limit game, a no limit cash game, it's going to be a Mm -hmm. lot more bluffy than it's going to be valuing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But now we've gone on a severe tangent. Yes, yeah. that's true. So let, let's get back to the hand. Uh, and if, if you want to talk about just a little bit about what you think Doc's like ranges here based on your you know bet sizing mm-hmm. read. So I think um, preflop he's you know forty percent, which is extremely wide. Um, King, I, I think King Jack Five of Clubs is super interesting. Um, he takes a bigger sizing, uh, which I think that connects with my flatting range a decent amount. Um, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of like King Queen, King Jack, but the interesting thing is that it doesn't connect so strongly. Um, like I think it's kind of a cool spot to bluff, to like bluff and keep bluffing because, um, a lot of my hands are going to be like suited Jack 10 suited Queen Jack that just have one pair and no flush draw. Um, because the King and the Jack, like all of the Broadway kinds of suited hands, none of them, except for like 10, nine of clubs, like, like there's very few flushes in them because of the king and the jack being both club, you know, both out there. 
So I don't have that many flushes. Um, and I don't have that many hands that are like, I could have King queen with the club, right? I get ace king with the club. I don't know if he knows that, but so I think it's interesting because I think it's a spot where, I mean, this is more applicable in the turn when I'm going to get into like what someone's bluffing range is. Um, so let, let me actually save this, this piece of it. I think right now his range is m most hands. I think he's going to see that he might be a little bit more reluctant to see about this board because I do connect with it. And I think he's going to think he's going to have to fire two or three barrels if he is going to bluff. So he might just decide to check fold if he's, you know, plus forgetting my hand. I mean, a lot of his hands will either connect very well or just have zero equity. So like if he had ace, nine of diamonds or something like that, you know, all of those kinds of hands were six, seven, eight of hearts, all of the like suited connectory or suited ace kinds of hands just basically flop no equity. And I think those like to check fold a lot. Um, and so, especially because I wasn't flatting him a ton. So it's not like, you know, if someone's flatting you all the time, you feel like you have to fight out of position sometimes. But when you're mostly getting your re-raises, your, your pre-flop raises through, um, I know that when I'm in this situation, if my if I'm not getting flatted and I'm not being forced to play out of position a lot, though with a few times that I am, if I get a really unfavorable flop, I'm just going to check fold and just move on to the next hand. So when he C-bets, and especially when he C-bets kind of on the large side, we're already giving him a pretty strong range. Um, his bluffs are going to be like ace queen or queen 10 with a club. Um, you know, any kind of, he could have a hand, you know, betting the size that he did. Um, he definitely could have all the flushes for sure. All the sets, all the two pairs. Um, and, you know, I think if he has a gut shot or something like that, he will stab the flop just as a bluff. So like, even like, 10, nine of hearts, something like that. I think he will stab those hands, but um, I haven't done the math. I haven't run all the numbers, but since we're eliminating a lot of the, just, I'm just going to eliminate the total air balls, like the ace five, a diamond, the ace six, a diamond kind of hands. Then I think his range becomes a lot stronger, um, even just for betting the flop. Cool. Um, want to go on to the turn or jack yeah sure let's go into the turn because i think the turn is the turn in the river are the most interesting i think the turn is by far the most interesting street cool cool um so the turn is a blank it's like a deuce maybe or something um and now he bets again really big i think two-thirds pot which like for all you cash players out there you're like that's not that big but in a tournament especially at this point in the, the tournament like you're talking about, you know, he's bet like five bigs on the flop and there's like 18 in there and he's betting 15 big blinds or, or, or like, no, like 12 or 13 big blinds. But that's a lot of my stack, you know, especially because he's been building a pot that's going to be 50 for him to potentially put in like a huge chunk of my stack on the river. So it's a pretty, pretty healthy bet. And at this point, um, the reason I think this is the most interesting part of the hand is because... I'm like pretty scared at this point that I'm beat um, because I don't understand what hands like I think especially on monotone boards I very rarely see people like I said I mean it's a great spot to just kind of fire three barrels but it also takes a ridiculous amount of heart and uh, and also I could just have a lot of nutted hands I mean I could easily have any suited ace I could have you know the set of jacks set of fives whatever so that I'm not folding so you know, for him to just randomly start to fire, especially given what I said before about the bubble. This is kind of why the bubble thing comes into play at this hand, because 
it's a spot where people already, I think, under bluff. I think, um, you know, monotone boards, like I said, a lot of his hands have very little equity. You very rarely see someone just fire three barrels as a bluff with no equity. So it would be pretty rare for him to be bluffing with the no equity hands and even rarer given the tournament situation. So then you start to look at, okay, so for value, so we don't think he's bluffing with like 10, nine of hearts because it's just like a very scary board to do that into for him. So you start to look at what are his possible bluffs? What are his possible value hands? Like, can I beat any value hands? Cause I have a very disguised hand. Once again, ace King top hair, top kicker. Um, but when he's betting this size, I really think he's polarizing his range so much. Like I just don't see him having like King queen or King 10 and just bombing it, you know, because if people don't really do that, cause it's like, what are you really trying to get value from? You know? Yeah. And that you're also really blocking, mean. you know, you have a King in your hand as well. So I have a King in my hand yeah. as well. So that also, yeah, definitely makes the King less likely, but just with the sizing, that's one of the things where I was just like, okay, he doesn't have those hands. Um, it just doesn't make sense because if you think about it, then you're putting yourself in a really awkward position. Um, you're not getting a lot of value from worse hands and you're putting, you're building this huge pot with a very marginal hand out of position. So he's just not doing that. I mean, I, I know his game well enough to know that. So if he's betting for value, he's probably beating me. Um, he's probably got two pair better. Um, he has all of the flushes, all the two pairs, not, not like Jack five suited, but King five suited King Jack. Um, all the sets. So that's, you know, a decent number of nine combos of sets and I don't know, a whole bunch of nine combos of two pairs and of King Jack and I guess three each of King five suited, but whatever. It's a decent number of combos, all, all the flushes and everything. So, uh, so I'm a little bit nervous, you know, or not a little bit. I'm actually very nervous because I don't think that he's bluffing very often. And I don't think that I beat very many value hands. So I, so I said, the reason I don't think he's bluffing. So I don't think He's bluffing with the no equity hands. The kinds of hands that he would be bluffing with here are like ace-x of ace-x with a club. Like if he had ace of clubs 10 or ace of clubs queen, those are he would play exactly like this. But the only trouble is that I have the ace of clubs. So it's one of those spots where, you know, I, I told this hand to my friends and they're like, you know, I actually legitimately was like going to fold the turn, which you think is crazy because you have the nut flush draw uh, and you have top hair, top kicker. But... Um, you know, having the ace of clubs in my hand, I'd actually rather not have the ace of clubs because then I actually beat more bluffs. And what I was worried about, I ended up, I did call the turn. Um, but I go, going back, if I had to do it over again, I think I would fold the turn and it seems crazy, but I just looking at that range of hands, um, you know, it's one of those spots where I'm calling a huge amount of chips. If I hit a club, I don't think I have implied odds. The only, the only thing that would make that good is if he was bluffing with a hand like queen of clubs 10 like that's the hand that i beat if he has like queen 10 or queen 9 with a queen of clubs like those are the hands he's going to barrel with but that's like literally two combinations of hands like there's you know or, or sorry if you think he's raising queen 10 offsuit then it's four combinations or something like that you know but it's 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 just very few he raised an early position i don't even think he's raising queen 9 offsuit so we're, we're literally talking about four combos of hands here and <laughs> Yeah, sorry. It, it, so, so you said before he's raising approximately forty percent under the gun as the chip leader at the six-handed table. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I'm pretty sure that has all the queen ten off combos in his range. Yeah. Do you think he's barreling on the turn with this sizing? You know, with all sixteen, you know, combos of the open ender, or no? Just they just have to have a club in them. No, I think with the queen of clubs. Oh, with the queen of clubs specifically. Okay. 
Yeah, the Queen of Clubs specifically. Maybe if he's feeling frisky with the Ten of Clubs, like we can give him two of the combos of the Ten of Clubs one, so maybe six combos. Mm-hmm. Um, but even still, you know, so then he's got six bluff combos because I have the Ace of Clubs, which would – Ace of Clubs 10 and Ace of Clubs Queen would add a lot more bluff combos in there, but they don't exist. So, yeah, yeah. so there's like six combos of bluffs. And even then, he might not even – you know, he might bet smaller. Like it's like with Ace of Clubs, you're kind of more emboldened to just bet huge because you have nut outs. But with the Queen of Clubs, he's also just like, like he, he'll want to steal the pot, but you're still a little bit nervous because like, even if you hit it, then you're not 100% sure that you're good. So um, so I don't know, you know. Yeah, well, and, uh, yeah, well so. I was going to say, so I, we started doing this a few months back. Um, like we do our podcast breakdown where, you know, take some time, you know, away from the table, away from the Skype and like use poker cruncher and you know work with the assumptions you're giving us about uh doc sands's range and like seeing like you know against the range you're you're giving us like how much equity does ace king with the ace of clubs have and you know it it sounds like to me that it doesn't have enough to call this size of the bet without implied odds but i'm I'm curious to see what it looks like exactly and then what the break-even point in terms of how many bluffing combos it needs to have for it to be a call yeah, absolutely. I, and let me revise. I just want to say, I keep saying 40%, but I realize he raised another gun, so I think it's going to be closer to like a 30% range because um, he is going to be pretty tight under the gun, 30, 25%, 30%, something like that. Um, but I, the other thing that I wanted to say was that it's not even just like equity. I mean, we talk a lot about equity, and you, you run, you can print out what's your equity versus a range of hands, but that doesn't take into consideration implied odds, like you said, but it also doesn't take into consideration reverse implied odds. And given how strong I thought he was, I just thought if I hit an ace or a king, there was like a very strong chance that I wasn't good, but also a very strong chance that I wouldn't be able to talk myself into a fold on the river. Um, like I would just somehow convince myself that I had to call because I made top two or something or, or because I made trips or something like that. Um, so I was a little bit nervous about reverse implied odds as well. Well, I think considering reverse implied odds is sort of, you know, that's very optional. Like we can, I could fold, right? We like, can definitely just resolve to never put a penny in the pot without the flush. Yeah. Right. So, but no, but then if you're talking about your equity against the range, you can't cause all, all I'm saying is then that, that just changes. If you plug into a calculator equity against the range, uh, and then you hit an ace, and then he makes like a weirdly bad value bet with King Jack that's pretty big, and then we fold incorrectly. I'm just saying that changes the calculations on the equity against the range. Sure, that's true. Uh, so that's I guess that's a complex issue. I'm what I was also going to ask you is, you mentioned you you think you have very very little implied odds, but I mean, do you think he's you know folding all of his you know, queen high flushes uh, when the flush comes. No, so that's yeah, that's so that, that's why I mentioned the queen. That's I said that's where my implied odds would come from. Would be if he had that hand, for sure. I would get a huge amount of chips that way. Um, okay. Well, so I have a little bit of implied odds, but I just thought my reverse implied odds were higher than my positive implied odds, like my negative implied odds, and so all in all, implied odds seem to be. I just it, it felt like they it was like a a negative a net negative. Well, we can we can do instead of just uh, a plain equity calculation. This sounds like a good spot to just uh, 
do some card winners EV and, uh, you know, put in that your strategy is always to fold uh, without a flush and, mm -hmm. you know, look at the different ways he might play and see if this is going to be, you know, correct. Okay, so or... I can't even just estimate this off the top of my head. I don't have like a, a program or whatever, but so if he has six combos of a queen of clubs and the 10 of clubs bluffs, like we said, let's say um, I make... Let's say with the ten of clubs, half the time he calls me on a huge river bet. So, like, let's just knock that down basically to five combos where I get paid off. Okay. So if I have five combos where I get paid off, but um, let's see if he has all the two pair or the nine. I guess I'm trying to guess. I'm just guesstimate. Okay, never mind. You have to do it with a calculator. I'm just like, okay, it's eighteen two pairs in sets, and then he also has a bunch of low flushes. But I could also get paid off if he ha already has like a made queen high flush. So, okay, if you have a program to put it into, then by all means. I thought I was going to be able to estimate it, but it's too many combos to figure out. But my what I was trying to get at was that it's something only like a fifth of the time. Like if he's bluffing only, you know, I'm only getting paid. I'm only getting paid off the times that he's bluffing. Yeah, and I, I guess like the, the last thing we would ask so we can do do our homework kind of the best to the best of our ability is like, you know, what type of sizing would you take when the fourth club comes? Because obviously like, I think you're going to want to bluff that card as well. And also want to be able to, you know, uh, like pressure him, uh, because you're on the bubble. So what, what is, what is like a, a sizing you're going to have with your, just range? given his yeah. range, if, if, like, is it, just given his range and the fact that I think a lot of it just won't call a river bet, but a lot of the the stuff that will like has a high club, I think I would probably bet pretty pretty big, like um you know two thirds pot. Yeah, and it's funny how this is is so different with you know cash and tournaments mm -hmm. because you know I, when I always think about okay I'm in a spot where it's like my uh, this isn't exactly that spot but like a spot where it's hard for me to have like a really good value hand and I could. And I'm You're like two like, X pot all in. Like, yeah, exactly. Just like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm usually just kind of defaulting to overbetting, and that's also because of how I'm normally perceived as like very aggressive as well. But yeah, just interesting how that changes in tournaments. Like, yeah. it's, it's rare to see overbets in these spots. I do, I do overbet a decent amount, but I just don't think it's a spot for it because I would really have to be definitely turning a made hand into a bluff and hoping for, like, if I bet two thirds pot, I could get hero calls sometimes without a club, but. I just think if I bet really, really big, it's just hard for me to not have a club and call two giant bets and then to, to not have a club and to have a hand that I want to turn into a bluff. Like I'd have to have called the second barrel with a really weak hand um, that wants to now bluff that doesn't have a club. And there's just not very many of those. So it's just going to be hard for Doc to make a huge hero call if he's like truly assessing my range correctly. So, but anyway, so yeah, I, but I, I guess I just think it's really interesting because, you know, when I was talking to my friends about the hand, they were like, well, like, in what world would you fold this? You have top pair, top kicker, and you have enough flush draw. But I just think like, I put them on a range where it, I just couldn't. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you think like, am I completely underestimating how often he's bluffing or do you think it's, I, I mean, I think it's really hard for us to know because we don't have experience, really much experience playing live tournaments, let alone super high rollers against elite players. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we can do is, you know, test a few different assumptions where it's like, okay, let's test how 
you know, Ace King with the Ace of Clubs does against like exactly what you're telling us now in terms of Doc's range. And then we could test, okay, like maybe it is closer to 40%. And then how, how is that doing? Or like, okay, maybe he could be betting Ace King for value on the turn and just like testing all these different things and finding the Mm -hmm. point where it makes sense to call. And then after that, you can kind of be like, okay, well that, that is pretty far from what I think is correct. So I'm I'm happy in my after tournament decision to have, thought of that as a correct fold or maybe oh. you can be vindicated in that you made the correct call <laughs> i wouldn't be vindicated because i'm convinced that i made a bad call and i was convinced at the time but it it was a weird thing that was going on with me where i had been talking strategy and to players that were like far more mathematically based my strength has, has always been the ability to intuit really well to read bet sizing to read people and their emotions and all of this stuff and to play exploitatively exploitively exploitably um, in order to like, just, you know, help my edge. But I had been talking poker with a lot of people who have decided to play much more, you know, trying to achieve like a game theory, optimal kind of way of playing, which is much more based around math. Like, and because of that, they're, they're always advocating, okay, you call this size bet with this part of your range, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of those players would think I'm like, basically, you know, on planet Mars for even thinking about folding a hand this high up in my range. Um, and so that was what was going through my head was like, I'm trying to, against really good players, I was trying to, I was kind of going back and forth between trying to default to playing unexploitably, unexploitably, but also trying to still utilize like the tools that have made me successful, which I think are my reading abilities. And so there was a little bit of tension there and I just decided, uh, like I was close to sure enough, but I just wasn't quite sure enough to pull the trigger and fold the turn. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, you know, yeah. Real quick, we never really talked about this. Uh, so, you, so you, you're taking a lot. You, a lot of your strategy in this hand is coming from uh, Doc's hands bet sizing. But what, you know, what other sizings might he choose on the flopper turn with you know parts of his value range? Like, what do yeah. you think those ranges look like, and what do you think those sizings yes, look like? Yes, totally. So, if he bet like a third pot or something like that. The whole game is different because now he could very easily just have like a king queen or like an ace, you know, an ace king himself, a king queen, maybe even a king 10. But I also expect him um, if he has one of those like non-nutted bluff hands like this, even even queen of clubs sometimes or 10 of clubs, um, like I expect him to just be a little bit more shy about the bluffing and and sometimes. And so I would just expect to see both of those kinds of things. But I just really um, I think more but more to the point, I think if you see like a third pot, um, it's just much more possible that he has uh, worse value hands occasionally. I mean, it's still not great. Like you still, <laughs> I was expecting him to check the turn. I mean, honestly, I wasn't expecting him to bomb the flop. So like, that's what I said. It all dates kind of goes back to that exact point because like even, you know, we were talking on the flop about his stabs and you know, when he stabs the flop, he's just trying to get me off of, like, if he stabs the flop with, like, an ace-10 of hearts, 10-9 of hearts kind of hand, like I said, that I thought he would, even then, I just expect him to stab, like, 50% pot or no more than that. Because with those hands, what you see from people – and, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, like, sizing tells are really good against amateurs and, like, kind of worse regs. But you'd be surprised. <laughs> They're actually really good against really good players, too. The reason for that is sometimes because really good players sometimes don't know that they have massive sizing tells. And sometimes I think some really good players know that they do, but they don't care because other people aren't really <laughs> using them well enough. So they just 
play, you know, they, they play with them because they're just like, whatever, it's a, it's a better sizing. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that way, like, you know, I'm playing live, you know, 2-5 No Limit and 1-2-2-2-2-5 PLO, and there's so many times, I would say a majority of the times when I'm on the Tour of the River, where that bet sizing is just like 95% value, 95% bluff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I'm making an exploitative read based on a player and I'm pretty sure of how they're going to react. And it's always funny if I ever play with, you know, Jack here, or a player that I think is like a really good thinking player. And I could yeah. just look at their bet sizing and be like, Oh, I know what you're doing again. Yeah. I don't think they would use their bet sizing against me. And exactly. I, I'm trying to be more conscious of this when in, you know, pots with better players, but yeah. And I think you're right that they wouldn't do it against you in the obvious spots, like the spots where, uh, you know, we all know what, a lot of us know what they are, but um, you'd be surprised at how often they'll still do them against you in the more subtle situations. Like, so, and I, that was kind of what I kind of got good at was like figuring out the subtle situations where, like, I played another hand. Oh, that's the hand that I should have talked about. I got to tell the hand history before I go because this is an amazing hand, and I'll just leave you to like you guys can talk about it or whatever once I'm gone or something. Cause, but it was all about sizing. Um, it was my bust out hand from Monte Carlo main event two years ago, I think. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess like the, the point is that, I mean, that there's a certain bet sizing that doesn't make sense that, you know, it's not necessarily that you can say for certain that they're going to bet this size with this hand, but a lot of time you can exclude a lot of things because you just say this just like, doesn't add up and I just don't see anyone do stuff you know something like that and, and, and let me I'm gonna make the point more clear when I let me quickly run through that Monte Carlo hand because it's really cool um so do your thing. are we so let me let me think are we good on this um I mean in the end basically what happened was the river was just a blank um he bet and I folded and he had king jack yeah I mean I think it's a clear fold at that point uh, one yeah. just the one last thing I want to say about this hand is like we're going to get to this spot, uh, I think, with Ace-King with Ace-Clubs and Ace-Jack with the Ace-Clubs. Yeah. Uh, given the value range you're assigning him, uh, I would, I'd rather call, I mean, much rather call with Ace-King Ace of Clubs, or not Ace-King of Clubs, Ace-King with the King of Clubs, just because it seems like you're, I think you're blocking a much more meaningful portion of his value range, uh, considering, no, 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 with Ace-King, because... Uh, she said he's only really value betting like two pair plus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I I'll I'll do my best to get on your side, uh, doing the math and considering ICM. But it, I think I personally think you made the right call, and I. Uh, on the turn. Yeah, I, I think you would have to, and you may have had this extremely strong read, but it would take an extremely strong read. That I think you'd have to be really confident about. But it's not even a physical read. I don't, I don't, if these, yeah, I I, the physical... I'll be interested to see the work. I'll be interested to see the work because um, you say about a strong read. Like I was pretty sure of my read about the value range versus the bluff range. So I'm just oh yeah, no, at that point, it's just math. I think I think your read might have been strong enough to make you know the math work out such that it's a fold. But it it just seems like. You know, we're talking about, you know, the sort of new school GTO type players, like, and how they would think you're crazy. And I, I, I do think that this hand in particular, you know, given the value range that you think this player is going to have, uh, it's it's hard for me. Uh, it's but, just going to take some work for me to get behind sure. the fold. So I, I have to play so with it. So I think this myself. is, 
it's I think this brings up a really interesting point because it's um I think a mistake that some people when they're trying to kind of get more GTO in their game mis- um, make, which is that they they want to bluff catch a certain percent of their range, so they choose their best hands from a pure uh, like hand value perspective. When in situations like this, when I would choose the better bluff catchers, so because when you have a situation where Ace King is the exact same as Jack Ten off, right? Like we can agree basically i don't think there's any hands he bluffs with that are better than jack 10 off and there's no worse hands he value bets than ace king so i think ace king is pretty similar to jack 10 off in those situations i would much rather not be blocking the big clubs so if like i could say i need to call this bet gto wise or whatever x percent you know if you do the math and you figure out what percent you really need to be calling this um i just think there's much better hands to pick to call than ace king with the ace of clubs like like king yeah, queen I, with no club, ace king with no club, or just much better hands. I think you definitely might be right, uh, but I guess, and I know you're considering these factors, but just for our listeners, like the other factors obviously are with the ace of clubs, we have a chance to improve when we are behind, and uh, even yeah, though sorry, we're blocking, like when you I compare, on oh, on the river for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm still think I'm thinking about the turn. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Uh, okay. Yeah, on the turn. Like when you look at Ace King versus Jack Ten, like our our hand is just weird because we block like just a ton of uh Doc Sands range. Like we block value and we block bluffs. Yeah, but there's four of every card in the deck, so I wouldn't overthink the blocking. Like we oh, the blocking the bluffs is huge, but the blocking the value hands, I don't I I just think it's it's easy to overstate that. Um, yeah. And so you know, so I think you're right that he might be just so over over uh, skewed towards value. Yeah, so skewed towards value that it's a fold, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to playing around with it myself. Cool, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Okay, let me show you this hand really quickly. Yeah, I'm just gonna run through it because it's really fun. It's like one of the best hands I ever played, and I I busted out with this hand, but whatever, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's kind of a brag, but it's just like a really fun hand. And it just illustrates the sizing thing really well, um, even though I'm not going to remember the exact bet sizings. But basically, the hand is – I just played this huge hand. We're seven off the money. I just played a huge hand where I flopped a set, actually, and I got runner-runner. But we didn't get to showdown. I ended up folding the river. I lost half my stack to him before. That's the only thing that matters. We're seven off the money. I raised in the cutoff with 35 bigs. I have jack eight of hearts. And the small blind is this like Euro kid, and he hasn't three bet me once. But I just find that people, after I lose a big pot, they tend to get a little bit more ambitious three betting me, especially if they haven't three bet me yet. Especially given our theory that the first three bet, a lot of times people are actually actively looking for an opportunity to three bet lights because they don't want the first three bet to be strong for some crazy reason. So anyway, I I had a read that I was just like I don't I'm not I'm not like sure that it's strong like light and I probably could have shifted in with jacket of hearts if I was sure or I probably still could have shipped it in but I didn't I was just like let me just play this hand in position and see how it plays out so I call the three bet um the flop is jack eight five all clubs uh and he bets so god I want to try to remember he bets like 20k into or like 15k into 50k or something like that like really small like the three bet was like to 22, you know, and he made it 15 on the flop or, or 13 or 14 or something. And this is like the key of the hand um, because at that point, you know, and I don't want to spend too long into this because I know it's already at 50 minutes here, but um, 
you know, at this point, like he had exactly a pot size bet left, or a little more than a pot size bet left. So he left himself 1.2x pot behind. And at that point, I was just like, okay, I don't understand what you can really have here because if you like, it's just such a small bet. It, people like to size small in three bet pots, especially when people are short, but not this small. And with this, I was just like, if you had even a hand, like, okay, you could have fought the nuts and bet this small short. Like you could have ace queen of clubs or some ace king of clubs, something like that. But that's not very many hands or just like any random two clubs, honestly, because he could have been light preflop. But it's still pretty hard to, to make a flush. And I was like, even hands like, okay, queen jack or king, like any overpair. And even if you have a club, you just want to like put more money in. So anyway, okay, let me go through the hand. So basically, so I called the bet. The turn is a seven. So it's jack, eight, five, three clubs. Oh, it turns a seven of clubs. I'm sorry. So there's now four clubs on the board. Jack, eight, five, seven, four clubs. And now he bets 20K into 80K, leaving himself like 90 behind. So I call and the, the pot is 120 and he has like 110 behind or something like that. Um, and the river is a, a queen. And he checks. So, you know, you're going to be like, Vanessa, you have middle two pair. How do you possibly go broke on this hand? Um, which is a fair thing to think yes. because that would be in a normal situation. I would check back, especially because the hand before the crazy things were right on the bubble. And I, I played the hand before so cautiously on purpose because I was just so scared. I, not scared, but I just didn't want to play a, like a really marginal hand in the bubble. But this was my thinking on this hand. I was just like, there's no way I'm beat here. I was like, if he had queen eight or queen jack, or something like that, which made a better two pair, he would for sure like bet bigger on the flop. Like if he had an over, like something like that, he would bet bigger on the flop for sure. Um, he can't have a medium club because a medium club would never bet the turn. Uh, like when the four flush comes, you know, he bets the turn, giving himself like, like leaving himself a pot size bet. That makes no sense. Like if he has a medium club or even if he has a straight, like if he had the straight draw, like nine, 10, nine, 10 made a straight on the turn. He's not going to bet that into me either, like ever, because it just doesn't make any sense. You know, he's just building a pot and only getting called, like getting called mostly by flushes. So he can't have those hands. And he also can't have the ace of clubs because I think on this river, he checks. I think he expects me to just give up and check behind a lot. Like I just never see someone with less than a pot size bet left, like check out of position in this situation with the ace of clubs, plus all the hands that had the ace of clubs anyway, like I was going back to the flop action. I was like, you would never bet ridiculously small with the ace of clubs in your hand unless you flopped it. Because you, like if you had ace, like ace queen with a club, people are going to bet pretty big so that they can just jam all in on the turn. Cause they have a hand that's strong enough to go all in on the turn. So I was like, you, the whole flop sizing was like, you just like, it doesn't make any sense for you to have anything except for just like the stone nuts or just nothing. Um, and then the turn made it even clearer because even if he could, the only hands that he could have had were like some sort of medium, like thing that was kind of probing like nines with the nine of clubs. I could see nines with the nine of clubs betting that small on the flop. But then on the turn, when he makes a crappy medium flush, he's not going to bet into me again. So I was just like, there's no hand that makes sense. I can't possibly be losing here. Um, so you so go I for value. What did you say? So you go for value? I went for value because I was like, well, I, I bet really small because I was hoping that he might check shove um, as a bluff. And then also like trying to represent the ace, even though I know based on the size and that he couldn't have it. Um, and I also was like, he could easily have just like rivered a random queen, you know, with like king queen or just like queen six off. And if I bet really small, he might just call. 
So I bet really small. I would think like 30, 25K or something, or 30, 30K, I think, into 120. With, and he has 80 back. Like he had 110 back, so 30 plus 80. And he check shoved, and I called. <laughs> and, uh, well, I lost. Yeah. Well, how about this? How about this? We'll, we'll have this. This podcast is going to come out like eight days from now. Yeah. Sa- save the result. And uh, I'll either me or Jack is, or we'll do the analysis for this one and we'll see if uh, we'll give you some, our candidates for the hands that check. Yeah, you should do it. Cause I mean, obviously my thinking was off somewhere, right? Like if I lost, so I thought that I couldn't lose and I lost. So, um, but it's kind of hard to predict what happened, like the reason, but I, I would love to hear you try um, for sure. It was a fun I want to start speculating, but I also want to give our, you know, listeners a chance to maybe guess too. So <laughs> without giving anyone a head start, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing these hands with us. Uh, we want to maybe take just a little bit more of your time, if you're willing to, sure. you know, ask you some questions that um, we we are very interested in and think our listeners would also be interested in hearing. Uh, Zach, I think, has a question that maybe you can answer better than almost anybody uh, in the world. Uh, Zach, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. So how have you balanced like your passion for social justice and your legal work with you know your career in poker? Mm, that's a great question. It's, it's definitely not easy. Um, in the past... Um, I, it was easier because I didn't do much work on my poker game. Like I just kind of showed up and played and it was, people were pretty bad and it worked out pretty well for me. Uh, and so I take a lot of breaks and, you know, either go to law school or, or do other projects. Like I was working on this police misconduct database for a long time and doing a bunch of legal work and et cetera, et cetera. But it's getting tougher because the games are getting tougher and you really need to, stay sharp and play more often and work on your game in order to be good. So I don't know. I mean, I just try to do shorter projects uh, to give myself a lot of chance to play. So I work at a legal organization or sorry, law firm. Um, but it's hard to like, it's hard because I don't take, like I always, I never just like working on a case by myself. I'm always just kind of like, I, ha- I have a bunch of different cases that I'm helping out with. Um, and I try to help when I'm there, but it's, that's been the toughest part because it's required me to just really stay in touch and, and kind of like know what's going on, which can be really hard when you're going deep in a poker tournament. Um, so my, my strategy the last, that's why the last year I haven't really gone deep in that many poker tournaments just cause you know, I was like, I can't do it. I get my clients can't afford it. So I'll just, I'll just bust out, you know? Um, no, but <laughs> so, uh, so it's difficult. Um, I do other projects, you know, like I, um, I organize a charity poker tournament, the Urban Justice Center. It's called Blind uh, Justice is Blinds, and it's in New York City in September, every September. Uh, if you're interested to know more, you can go to poker.urbanjustice.org. But um, it's been that's been a really cool, uh, really fun event, um, and just to see that get put together and stuff. And it's an organization that I really believe in does legal services for a lot of needy New Yorkers, different um, populations of people. So that's been really cool. I also sponsor a fellowship, like where someone else does a bunch of work and I just give them money, which is a lot easier to, to do. But that's cool because I, you know, I choose the, I do all the interviews for the fellows and I kind of get to know them and I get to know their projects. So it's a little bit more up close than just sending a check to, to an organization. So that's been a lot of fun, pretty rewarding too. 
That's awesome. And we'll, we'll link to the charity event in the show notes for this episode and uh, on the accompanying blog posts. How, so that we have a couple of questions. I think that, you know, your answer leads well into all of them, but first, I guess, staying on the poker side, uh, what does studying look like for you these days uh, at this point? Um, honestly, it's pretty different for me than for a lot of people. Like, because I've, um, you know, I know a lot of people are running a lot of simulations and using various programs. I'll do that sometimes when I'm, if I'm on the road and I'm traveling with people, um, you know, I'll sometimes do that stuff. But for me personally, it's a lot more about just like, I take a lot of notes on the hands that I play. Um, every tournament I'm just writing down different hands. And so I'm constantly kind of going through them and trying to figure out like trends that I see and little exploitations. Cause I just decided that that was my game. My game is not like figuring out the exact percentage to call and that stuff, you know, I've always been able to, intu- like for me, uh, I could get really good at that stuff by putting in a ton of work, but I've always been able to intuit pretty well, like what range I should call with in these spots. Like I'm really good at um, guesstimating that kind of math. So it's like the 90, 10 rule where I'm just like 90, I'm already 90% of the way there. I could put in a ton of work and get 10% further, but it just doesn't seem worth it for my time. So I just much rather spend the time kind of, Reviewing old hands and, and reviewing reads on people, like, I don't have the best memory, actually, which I think a lot of people would be surprised at. And so it's a lot of kind of going through it in order to, it's almost like cramming just because, like, re- reminding myself, like, especially sometimes when I take some time off, if it's been a while since I've played, I just want to, like, I observe things well, but then if I forget them, then it's kind of useless. So I'm just going through and making and brushing up on like all the observations I've been making and stuff. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to like see patterns at the poker tables. Um, so I'll just take notes on all those patterns and then just go through them. Yeah. And like what, how big of a time range are you looking at? And do you have anyone else who you trust to look at their notes and try and, you know, observe trends from what they've, what they've seen? Yeah. I mean, I have a few people that I talk about that kind of stuff with, um, it's less of a trust issue, but I, I mean, I don't really talk that much poker with that many people anymore. It's less of a trust issue and more of just like a, like I said, I think there's been a kind of move away, like, especially among the high stakes community, there's been a move away from that kind of poker analysis into more, um, the math based stuff. Like even the way that we used to discuss strategy, um, like theory wise, I mean, the, the, the people that are doing the math work are still discussing theory. So it's not like that we've abandoned discussing theory, but it's it's only a part of the piece of it now. Um, and that was so. So I'll still I'll still do that. I'll still discuss strategy, but it seems to always be secondary at this point to the like uh, to like running sims and stuff like that. So I've just kind of my style is so different than other people now, um, like in terms of how I play, but also how I learn. So that's just kind of led me down a different path. I still talk to like, I'll talk to like um, Daniel Negreanu a bunch. I'll talk to my friend Jesse Sylvia, who I coached. I talk to him a whole lot. I talk to Stevie Chibwick, but he's doing more of the math stuff. Um, so that's just some names. I know people like to hear that kind of stuff. But um, you know, D- Daniel is kind of more um, someone that is kind of with me in like the older school. We're like the new, like the old school, new school at this point, um, which is kind of funny. Like he was old school, old school. And then he like changed his game. And, you know, so... Now he's like old school, new school. Yeah, Eric Seidel I'll occasionally talk to as well. That's interesting. We we just uh, recently had Daniel on the podcast, and we had Jesse uh, a couple months back. Oh, great. And 
we asked Daniel also about his studying methods, and he was talking about actually like reviewing tape of the opponents he's likely to face. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I do. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah, and I, I you know, it's there. There's not, it's just such a, like an interesting and cool thing for me to consider because uh, yeah, there's no tape. Uh, right. My opponents. Uh, yeah. Very little. Definitely. Uh, I mean, that's like yeah, that's not as useful as, but but. It is like it is really useful. I think and it's interesting that like people don't really do that that much. Like if I'm ever playing a major final table, I'll definitely do that like the night before the final table. And of course, if I'm playing an event that's small with like a super high roller, I can, you know, it, like a lot of us just watch the broadcast for fun, you know, because they're fun to watch and they're also a lot of our friends. Like, and, you know, I'll turn on any kind of high roller final table now, and it's like, I'm, you know, I know most of the guys that are there, so it's just fun to watch. And and but in watching that, there's definitely like a lot that you can pick up for sure. So our, I guess our last question for you is, you know, with your massive ROI and skill set in tournaments, uh, do you ever have any energy left over for cash games like these days or a few years back? And just like, what's your relationship like with cash? Sure. Um, so I actually started playing cash. Um, you know, it wasn't a tournament, a full, fully fledged tournament donk until after law school, really. Um, I started playing cash in like 04 and then I played when I was pro from like 06 and 07, I was a cash player. I would play the occasional tournament, um, but it, you know, that was it. And so, um, so, so that was how I started. And I think it's actually really great to start as a cash player before going into tournaments. Like, you know, the people that start as cash players, you see, they just have such a different, just much more deeply rooted understanding of the fundamentals and, and understanding of the theory behind the decisions, because all the deep stack decisions are so, much more variable and there you can't like memorize them nearly as well. So you just have to kind of understand the why behind what you're doing rather than just the what. Um, so that was what I did then. And nowadays I don't play that much cash. I play occasionally like around the city sometimes. Um, but honestly, like when I'm on a poker trip, I'm trying to play tournaments. And then when I'm not on a poker trip, like because I have all those other things that I like to do to kind of keep me balanced um, there's just not a lot of time for it really, but I did play a one, two, $1, $2 cash game in the Borgata, uh, last week, two weeks ago, we were at, the, I was at the Borgata with my friend Galen Hall, who Jesse was there too on the trip, but Galen was there and, and he was a tournament player a long time ago. And now he, he's like a working stiff. So we don't, we don't get to do that very often. And we like got drunk and just like, I hadn't done that in years and years and years, done like a drunk one, two game, but it was really fun. And we, invented a game where if like a, a four I think it was a, if any two or a black four came on the flop and like we had to take the aggressive action in the hand like if it checked us we had to bet but if it bet into us we had to raise but like we didn't tell anyone else about the prop and we we're like paying each other you know it was just really fun because it like kind of gave an added complexity to the game I made 2200 bucks oh that's awesome we should try that Jack maybe yeah Something it like was that. so cool because people I, we told we sat down and we're, I was just like okay we're doing a prop you're gonna see us pass money back and forth if anybody guesses what the prop is if you guess it exactly I'm gonna pay you a thousand bucks if you guess if you're if you're kind of close to it I'll give you five hundred or three hundred I think I said um, so they were like trying to figure it out the whole time and like I think it was throwing them off a little bit but it also just made it really fun so it was cool yeah yeah I'm looking uh. I'm looking forward to a point in my life where I can offer someone a thousand dollars to guess the prop at. Uh, it was gonna be pretty hard for them to guess. Like, if any four or, or if any deuce or a black four comes on the flop, then you have to take an aggressive action. So. And you guys are also just gonna be playing like 
really aggressively just kind of for fun anyway so it's it's kind of tough exactly exactly yeah it was like uh so if a black four or a black black four or two comes i'm gonna raise and if any other card comes i'm probably also still gonna raise so yeah <laughs> yeah anyway it was good fun though well uh yeah thank you <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast yeah. Vanessa. Uh, Absolutely. this is, I think our first one we've ever done where we got two hands. So that means two podcast breakdowns. So we're, a hand and a half, a hand and a half. Uh, uh, so we're, we're really, right. ex- we're really excited to kind of take a deeper look into this stuff and, you know, continue the conversation. Cool. In a week or two. That's exciting. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me guys. Yeah, of course. It's our pleasure. Uh, hope you have a great day. Hope the charity poker, uh, the charity tournament, it's a tournament, right? It's a tournament, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, are you playing? I, I am so. playing, yeah. I got a third last year, I think, somehow. I don't know how that happened. I was running around. That's probably why I wasn't, like, bluffing off all my chips, because I was, like, hosting the tournament, you know? So, um, yeah. No, it's yeah. great. There's actually, we give away, last year we did a PCA package. I'm not sure what we're giving away this year, but we give away, like, a huge first prize. There's really great prizes at the final table. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. A lot of people, you know... Not to like to my own horn a little bit here, but a lot of, you know, but I'm going to like just uh, plug the event. Like a lot of people said it was their favorite charity event they've ever been to. So, you know, we, I just have been to a lot of charity events and I kind of just focused on making it a really enjoyable experience. And I think people like noticed that and just like stayed till, like we expected, we had this room that was like at the, it was, uh, like there was almost a hundred, I think 180 people came last year. And the, the plan was like, there was this really cool, it's like venue within within the venue, which is like an upstairs area, which held three tables. So when the final three tables happen, we're going to move up there. And I was like, okay, there might be a few stragglers. So we'll probably have like 30 people up there, you know, at like 11, 1130 at night. And I swear that room was packed, like pe- like wall to wall. I think there must have been like 100 people in that tiny little room because like no one wanted to leave, which is such an awesome thing. It just made it really fun. So Yeah, that sounds like way better than uh, most of the charity events I hear about. Yeah. Uh, so, All right. Yeah, you should come on by. It's uh, just a uh, 1K. It's a uh, 70% tax deductible. Um, so, you know, you end up spending seven, 800 bucks and it goes to a good cause. And, yeah. Yeah. All right. Take note, everybody. What's the date? Oh, uh... Uh, God, I don't even know if we have it. It's always it's like the last Tuesday in September. So, whatever. Okay, so, is. we've got some time to remind We've people. got some time. Absolutely. Anyway. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks a lot for having me. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bye.